imagine what that first Easter would have been like 2,000 years ago? I imagine it had cell phones back then, right? <laughs> a little different. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that the way that most of us will be spending our Easter weekend this year is pretty different than they would have spent it 2,000 years ago, right? I love Easter. Like, Easter's a blast. You got, you got the Easter bunny. You got Easter candy, right? You got Easter egg hunts. We did one of those this morning with our kids. You got good food. Did I mention Easter candy, right? I got a sweet sweet tooth. I remember growing up, my, I got great parents. My parents, there's four of us kids, and they would get up earlier than we did every Easter, and they would hide our Easter, they prepared Easter baskets, and they'd hide our Easter baskets around the house, and then, you know, you wake up as like a scavenger hunt trying to find them. And then you spend the rest of the morning ODing on candy, right? <laughs> it's fun to share a meal together, you know, with family and friends, and just be able to celebrate that way. I love doing that. I usually overeat, and then fall into a food coma for a couple hours later, right? I love Easter. I love Easter. But it wouldn't have... <laughs> I'm not alone. That's good. <laughs> but it wouldn't have been that way when it all started out almost 2,000 years ago. Most of that first Easter was a genuinely terrible weekend. You know, think about it. Probably a lot of us know the story. You had this man who was doing incredible things, right? Incredible things, supernatural things, miraculous things. And he was turning everything upside down. And he brought understanding to people who were confused, who were misled. He brought physical healing to people, right? Like miraculous physical healing to people who were paralyzed or, or blind or mute or harassed by a demon. He brought real tangible help to thousands of people who needed it in various ways, like, for example, feeding people, thousands of people who were hungry. And he brought hope to so many people that were just uh, enveloped in hopelessness. And he talked about living for God, right? He talked about leaving behind our, our selfishness and our sin. And he loved people, like just genuinely loved people. And he served people. And he accepted people. And he spoke truth to people. And he showed people the way to be made right with God and receive the gift of life forever in paradise once this life ends. That's who he is. That's who he was. That's what he did. And then you had this religious establishment at the time who was in control and they didn't like it, right? They liked things the way that they were. They liked to be in control. They liked to be the important ones in people's eyes. And they didn't like anybody who opposed that. And so what did they do? They riled up the crowd, right? They riled up the people, the other Jews. And they got the people who were in charge, which was the Romans back then. The Jews were ruled by the Romans. They got the people who were in charge to unjustly arrest this man. And in what could hardly be considered an actual trial, like literally in the middle of the night, they quickly sentenced him to death the very next day, right? And not just any kind of death, but one of the most horrible, painful, excruciating, humiliating, long and drawn out ways to die. Crucifixion. 
death on a cross. Literally being nailed to two pieces of wood. He would have had a little thing to be able to push himself up with, with his feet. Because that's the only way that you could breathe when you're hanging there like this, right? And you just hang there and hang there and hang there until you're too tired to be able to push yourself up and take a breath. Until you suffocate and you die. And that's what they did to him. They killed him. It was a Friday. We call it Good Friday. But that first one was a genuinely terrible day. And I don't know what you think about when you think about that. Like, I think, like, what kind of people would do that? You know? Like, like what jerks? You know? Like, what animals? Right? Like, who would take somebody who's doing good? Like, even if you don't believe who he says he is. He's doing good. He's loving people. He's helping people. He's healing people. What kind of person would do something like that to him? Animals. But the truth is, I'm the animal. I'm the animal. Because I'm the one who put him there. Because this man that they did this to wasn't just a man. He wasn't just a guy. He was the man. He was the God man. We actually talked about this a few weeks ago in our services. We talked about God the Son. 2,000 years ago, God the Son, who's completely and totally and fully God, who always has been. 2,000 years ago, he took on flesh and blood and he became Jesus Christ. And he didn't come to be a king and to be served, right? To live a privileged, comfortable life. That's not how he came. Instead, he came to live a humble life. And he came to die. In fact, he came to suffer and die for you and for me. And they didn't kill him. He actually sacrificed himself. He chose it. His life for mine. See, whether, and this is, I realize this is a little uncomfortable. This makes us uncomfortable. Whether we want to admit it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not, we've all been pretty rotten at times in our lives, right? Not totally rotten, just partially rotten. And we've all done some really good things too, I'm sure. But we've done some rotten things too. We've made some mistakes. I've made lots of them in my life. I've hurt a lot of people. I've been unkind to people. I've lied. I've cheated. I've been prideful. I've been selfish. I've been lustful. Just rotten, right? And you have too, right? It's okay to admit that. It's okay to admit that in church. Actually, it's good to admit that in church, right? It's actually kind of liberating to admit it. We're sick. It's what Jesus calls us in the Bible. We're sick and we're in need of a doctor. All of us are kind of screw-ups, right? We're all a little bit rotten. We're all in the same boat together. That's bad news. That's some bad news. And here's more bad news, because even being a little bit sick, even being a little bit of a screw up, even being a little bit rotten, it's not okay with God. The Bible describes God in some really specific ways, like throughout the Bible, when you read it, like it describes God and who he is and his qualities in very specific ways. One of the ways God is described is holy. Do you know what holy means? Holy means set apart. It means completely pure. It means totally uncontaminated, separate from evil, separate from sin, separate from rottenness, right? God is holy. 
Bible also describes God as righteous. He's full of rightness. There's no wrong in him, right? There's no bad in him. He's pure. He's holy. He's full of rightness. The Bible also describes God as just, full of justice. Think of a court in our legal system. In a court case, when someone's done something wrong and they get convicted, what happens next? They receive punishment, right? Or payment. God is just. And see, that's bad news for us because we just got done saying that all of us are a little bit rotten, right? All of us have a little bit of some wrong stuff that we've done. Bible talk calls those things sin. It deserves punishment. But see, that's why Jesus came. That's why God the Son took on flesh and blood to die, to take my punishment. He obviously didn't deserve it, right? He's God. In fact, he's the only one to ever live that didn't deserve it. God became man in Jesus to die for animals like us. Forgive me for calling you animals, but I call myself one too, right? Because we're all a little bit rotten. My sin and your sin put him on the cross. But see, here's the thing. He chose it. He chose it. It wasn't forced on him. That's why he came to die. He chose it for us. Why would God choose to suffer and die and take the punishment for people like us? The punishment that people like us deserve. Like, I know myself. I've been a jerk many, many times in my life. Why would God choose to take my punishment? I'm not worthy of that. Well, listen. This is the most important thing I'm going to say this morning. Ready? Would you listen? Why would God choose to take on flesh and blood and die to take the punishment that I deserve. Why would he do that? Because he loves us. Guys, you got to hear that this morning. He looks at you and he absolutely adores you. I don't know what you've been through in your life. I don't know the bad decisions that you've made. I don't know the people that you've hurt. I don't know what goes on behind the walls of your house. But I know this, he absolutely adores you. I was looking at my daughter. I have two kids. I have a daughter who's six and a son who's nine. I was looking at my daughter, Natalie, and she's just a beautiful little girl. And I just love her so much. And then down, I'm talking, I'm like, I just love you. She's like, thanks, Dad. Like, I love you. She doesn't get it. She doesn't understand. But here's what I know about my daughter. She does some wrong things. <laughs> There's times I get frustrated with her, right? There's times she's selfish. There's times she's really high need, like really needy, right? There's times she fights with her brother and does the wrong things to people. But guys, I look at her and I absolutely adore her. Listen, just as you are, as a sinner who's partially rotten, God loves you completely and totally, even with your rotten spots, apart from any performance, right? With all of your shortcomings, with all of your failures and your, and your quirks and your bad decisions and your bad days, there's nothing that you could do, nothing you could possibly do to make him love you any more than he already does. He thinks the world of you. And he thinks the world of me. See, sometimes for some reason we get this wrong. Like we think that God hates us, that God like wants to condemn us. He doesn't want to have anything to do with us. He's frustrated with us. Like he's ashamed of us. I don't know why that is. Maybe it's because of our sin. Maybe deep down we know that sin and God don't go together. And our sin kind of feels like it's pushing us away from him or pushing him away from us. And sin does do that. It does do that. But in spite of our sins, 
He loves us completely. And he loves us totally. But don't forget, he's also holy and righteous and just. And his holiness and his righteousness and his justice still demand that our sin be paid for, to be made amends for, right? To be made right. Guys, that's why Jesus came. Like, that's why he came, to suffer and die on that terrible Friday for us. We call it Good Friday. It wasn't a very good Friday for Jesus, right? It was a terrible Friday. He came to suffer and die on that terrible Friday for us. He paid the penalty that we deserve so that we could enjoy the life that he deserves. That's called grace, right? Grace says that instead of the separation of God that I deserve because of my sinfulness, remember, God is holy, he's righteous, he's just, right? I, I am not those things. And so the separation from God that I deserve because of my sinfulness, instead of that, I receive forgiveness. And in a way, I get washed clean. That's what the Bible calls it. I get washed clean. I get made white as snow, uncontaminated. Like, this is incredible news, it's easy, like it, we've grown up in a country where you could, there's churches on every corner, right? Like we could hear this as, as many times, it's easy for it to kind of lose its effectiveness. This is huge, guys. This is incredible news. Jesus' death on the cross has made a way for us to be sin-free, to have all our sins paid for, for us to be forgiven. But here's the thing. We need to receive it. We need to accept it. We need to claim it. That forgiveness is not automatically applied to everybody. It's a gift to us, but we have to receive the gift. And it's so simple, but it's not easy. And it's totally free, but it costs us everything. It costs us our life, right? I claim, how do I, how do I claim it? How do I receive it? I claim this gift of forgiveness and grace by choosing to accept it by loving God and his son Jesus and committing to follow him the rest of my life. That's it. I make him the most important thing about me. You know what it's kind of like? It's kind of like marriage. So my wife's name's Marsha. At some point in our relationship, I came to Marsha and I said, I love you. Totally. Like, I love you completely. And I want to commit the rest of my life to you. Right? And when I said that to her, she's got a choice to make. She has to make a choice. You don't just go, oh, thanks. Right? That's not good. That's not the right answer. She has a choice to make. What do I do with that? Does she say, I love you too. I love you. You're really important to me. And I commit the rest of my life to you as well. Or does she go, eh, I've seen better. I'm going to keep looking. <laughs> right? But she's got to make that choice. There's no middle ground, right? You either accept that love and that commitment, or you go, no, I'm going to look elsewhere. Guys, it's the same thing with God. And this gift of grace and forgiveness and peace that he offers us. He says to us, I love you. I look at you and you're the apple of my eye. You're so good. I love you. And I am committed to you. Will you commit to me? And we have a choice to make. Do we respond to him and say, I love you too. And I commit my life to you. Or do we go, I'm keep looking. I'm going to look elsewhere. 
And guys, when you make that decision, when we make that decision, we make that commitment, we say, I love you, I'm going to commit the rest of my life to you. It doesn't mean we become sort of, some sort of weirdo, right? Like some Christians can be weirdos. Fundam- right? <laughs> Fundamentalists. We could be crazy. We could act like fools. Doesn't mean that we stop hanging out with our friends and just like cocoon ourselves in the church and only hang out with church people. It's not what it means. It doesn't mean that, you know, I, I can't listen to my favorite music anymore. It's not what it means. What it means is I recognize the incredible way out that God has given me through what Jesus did on that terrible Friday almost 2,000 years ago. And I realize how desperately, desperately he loves me. And I choose to live my life differently because of it. No longer do I live for myself. No longer do I live out of selfishness for my sin, out of my ambition. Instead, I'm driven by God's incredible love for me. I live for him. And guys, that is the most freeing thing in the world. I remember this. Like I, I, I'm not just up here telling you what the Bible says. I've experienced this in my life. I remember what it was like to stand before God and be praying and trying to work really hard so that he would accept me. Well, if I do this, if I'm nice, if I go to church, if I do this, then maybe he'll accept me. Maybe he won't, but maybe he will. Like trying, trying, trying to get him to approve of me. I remember what that was like. Guys, that is so different from going, he loves me. Like he, he loves me. He's committed to me. And I love him too. And he already accepts me. All I have to do is receive that love and then live my life as a response to that love. I don't live my life trying to earn it. He already loves me as much as he possibly could. I don't live trying to earn it. I live as a response to it. Guys, that is the most liberating thing in the world. Now, jump back to the Easter weekend, right? The Easter story. It doesn't just stop there. It doesn't just stop on that Friday. It actually keeps getting better because Jesus didn't stay dead, right? He died and he did what he came to do so that we could be forgiven. But Friday is not the end of the story. Friday, he died on the cross. Saturday, he lay dead, sealed in a tomb, right? But then there's Sunday. Sunday came. And Sunday is different. Somehow, in some way, by the power of God, Jesus came back to life. He rose again. He resurrected. He conquered sin and he conquered death. My sin, he conquered. Can you imagine what it would have been like, like if you were one of his friends? You know, like these ladies come running back from their tomb. They're like, it's empty. It's empty. He's not there. And there's an angel. And the angel said that he's alive again. You're like, what? What are you talking about? What's empty? The tomb? I just saw him dead. Did they steal his body? What do you mean by that? Like it's mystery, right? It's crazy. But it didn't stay a mystery very long. Because over the next 40 days, he showed himself to lots of people. The Bible says hundreds of people. In fact, at one time, one instance, he showed himself to over 500 people at once. And he talked to people. And he taught them. And he ate with them. And he showed them the nail holes in his body. He was indisputably alive. In fact, all of his best friends were willing to give their lives for believing that their friend and leader Jesus was dead and that he rose again. They were willing to die for that. And most of them did. It's amazing. And while he was alive, after he rose again, he gave them a mission. And he gave us a mission. You know what the mission was? Go tell other people the good news. What just happened is really, really good news. Sin is paid for. 
right? Grace is available. Peace with God is at your fingertips. You just got to accept it. Go tell people. Tell people the good news about what happened, right? That's the mission that he gave them and he gave us. And then after 40 days, he was gone. He was gone. He ascended up into heaven. The Son, God the Son, went back to be with God the Father. But there's one thing that he told us before he left. You know what it is? He said, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. See, when Jesus came, one day he's going to return. When he came the first time, he came as a suffering servant. That's what the Bible calls him. He came, we sang a song, Man of Sorrows. He came to literally suffer and die for us. He was a man of sorrows. He was a suffering servant. But when he comes back, he's coming back differently. He doesn't come back to suffer and die again. He finished that. That's done. That's paid for. He comes back as a triumphant king. A triumphant king. He comes back to destroy evil and the devil and all of the powers of sin and darkness. And he will. He comes back to restore a world that's got a lot of rotten things in it. That's been affected for thousands of years by sin and death. And he promises, he says, I'm going to make all things new. And he will. He comes back to gather in his arms all of those of us that love him and follow him in this life. And sentence those that didn't to what their lives deserve. And he will. And one thing the Bible makes really clear is that it could happen at any time. The Bible says that when he comes back, it's going to be like a thief in the night. No one knows when a thief is going to strike, right? No one knows when he's coming back. Could be today. Could be tomorrow. It could be a thousand years from now. The question is, maybe the two questions are, will you be ready? And will you be on his side? Will you be ready when he comes back? He's coming back, he promised. And will you be on his side? See, he loves you so deeply, like so completely. He died so that you and I could be forgiven. And he wants us, everyone in this room, everyone on this planet, to know him and to love him and to follow him. And he gives us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to make that decision in our lives. And he whispers to our heart. Do you hear it? Like, I remember... I remember being so lost in my life, not knowing right from left, not knowing right from wrong. And I remember hearing him whisper to my heart, I'm here. Trust me, I'm trustworthy. Love me, I love you. Follow me, I'll lead you where you need to go. But here's the thing, will you listen? And how will you choose? Will you choose to trust him and love him and follow him. He wants to be the most important thing in our lives. He doesn't want to be number two. He doesn't want to be number three. He wants to be the most important thing about us. Will you choose him? Or will you choose some other way? We're each free to choose, right? God doesn't force us to love him. If it was forced, it wouldn't be real love. If I forced Marsha to love me, she doesn't really love me, right? She doesn't have a choice in it. He doesn't force us. He gives us the choice to love him or not. He calls out to us over and over and over again. But here's what he does. He respects our decision. He respects our decision. Tonight, he calls out to you. This morning, I'm used to preaching at night. This morning, he calls out to you, to me. He says, trust me. He says, love me. He says, follow me. 
As the band comes up, I want to end with one of the last things Jesus said to his disciples. So this is, this is right before he's literally nailed to the cross. And he's hanging out with them and he's eating with them. And this is what he says. It's in John 14. I think he says this to us this morning too. He says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you what I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. He says, you know the place where I'm going. And then Thomas, I love Thomas. Thomas is like, Jesus, we don't know where you're going. How could we know the way to where you're going? And Jesus answers him. He says, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Guys, listen. Jesus is preparing a place for us right now. And he calls out to us. He says, believe in God. Believe also in me. Trust him. Like we all have the choice to make. And there's no middle ground. We're either for him or we're not for him. There's no walking the tightrope, walking the fence, right? And my prayer for us tonight is that each of us would make that choice to trust him, to love him. He loves you and to follow him with our lives.